No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. Did you know that two 16-foot stainless steel statues once stood atop the Astoria Pool locker rooms? Or that thousands of visitors to the 1964 World's Fair in Queens signed a book that was included in the Westinghouse time capsule designed to endure for 5,000 years. Learn more about the storytellers and the Queen's history from the archives of the Greater Astoria Historical Society that inspired this story swap from the second half of our Here and Gone show, hosted by Ellie Devorkin Dunn. Before we move into the second half, I just want to let you know that... One of the stories in the second half contains themes relating to sexual assault. So this is a trigger warning that if anyone has any kind of emotional response, you're welcome to excuse yourself either to our outdoor courtyard or there's a bathroom over that way for as long as you need to collect yourself. And now, please welcome our second set of storytellers, Olena Jennings and Rosalie Chandler. Olena. Olena is an author and a poet. You just won the Pushcart Prize. I did. That's so exciting. Congratulations. The translation that she did. That's um, remarkable. I'm very impressed. Now I'm going to ask you some silly questions. Oh, also, you live in Queens. You live in Astoria. I live in Astoria. In, at the Dittmar stop, stop. Which is yeah. the very last stop in Astoria, for those of you who don't know. All right. Let's start with a here and gone question. Name something in New York City, preferably in Queens, but can be anywhere, that used to be open but now is closed. Oh, um, I would say this is not in Queens, but I would say Kim's video. Yeah. <laughs> Where was Kim's video? The village? It was by Columbia. Columbia. I mean, it was maybe by the, in the village too, but it was also by Columbia. Was like a like a VHS tape renting or by, what? Yeah, yeah. It was. They had lo lots of independent movies. Are really cool and. You could just go hang out and look at your selection for the night. VHS tapes are something else that used to be here, but now are gone. <laughs> yes. um, all right, let's do a Queens question. What's your favorite subway stop in Queens? I mean, first, how long have you lived in Queens? Uh, let's see. Like, like, this is like a question for people who've lived here a long time. <laughs> but could, this um, it's, it's about 11 years now. Okay, yeah, that qualifies. Favorite subway stop in Queens? <laughs> And why? Um, oh, that's a hard one. I mean, I all, I like all the subway stuff. <laughs> <laughs> in Astoria. They redid them, and they have beautiful stained glass. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you mean the actual station? I don't mean anything. I want you to answer this in whatever way feels okay. true to your soul. Like, I like I this mean, stop because it's close to my house. I like this stop because, like... I get the sense that I like the Jimmar stop because it's, like, homecoming. Right. <laughs> But I like the stops leading up to it as well because they're, I'm feeling almost like home. I'm almost home. So, I love yeah. that. So you're just like, you like keep track and you're, you're like, oh, look at the answer. She likes all of them. That's like such a, like my nine-year-old answer. What color? What's your favorite color? I like all of them. Actually, it's green. He likes green. Um, all right. And now, please 
enjoy my book about water, written by Elena Jennings and performed by Rosalie Chandler. My book about water. My dad came to Astoria from Wisconsin to see the ghost of stainless steel statues of female athletes. The statues had once stood on the top of the locker rooms at Astoria Park Pool. He was not one for history, but he liked things that could be dissected, like the statues, which had been assembled from many pieces. He liked to put things together again, like the numbers of a math equation. The statues had disappeared long ago. He lingered around the pool, but it was fall, and the pool was drained of water. The bottom was turquoise, and the lines came out to him, like the graph paper he always used. My relationship with swimming had been one of surfacing and then almost drowning. It was similar to writing the novel about my dad. He was the hero in my book, the one who created magical potions. In high school, I was learning to swim at the same time I was writing my first novel with the help of a novelist critique group. The first strokes were easy. The first pages came naturally. In the critique group, we spent two hours workshopping and then went to a neighborhood bar afterward. I don't remember if that was when I had my first beer. Everyone had stories that seemed to shine in comparison to mine. Someone was writing about stained glass and vampires with stunning detail. Someone else was writing about watching another woman sleep, a form of connection that intrigued me. I was writing about the time my dad took me to see Jamaica Kincaid and told her I wanted to be a writer. Then she recommended Gertrude Stein, and I remembered already having had conversations with my dad about tender buttons. After swimming, I left with the feeling of having escaped, mostly having escaped the fate of my body, sinking to the bottom, meeting the cold blue tiles, unable to resurface, a lack of air and words disappearing beneath my skin. I always wrote best in the mornings. My dad was up early too. For a time he rode his bike, and then he would make tea and read his math books. My keyboard clamored and his pencil scraped against the pages. I had my first reading at a venue overlooking Lake Michigan. I thought I could feel the water pulsing as I read. I always wrote, no matter what. I wrote through sickness and disappearance. I wrote the morning my grandmother passed away. I wrote selfishly. At the same time, the novel was failing, the final chapters devoid of inspiration. I found myself unable to stay on the surface of the pool. I grabbed for the walls, and I started to have hallucinations. The hallucinations involved objects in my life that were now gone but I made them somehow present again. Often they were the fabrics that enclosed the bodies of the people I loved. One was the pilled nightgown my grandmother always wore that grew paler over time. Another was the chiffon dress of a doll I once clung to, though she was made of porcelain and couldn't really be hugged. Another was the scratchy yarn of the blanket my friend Heather crocheted with which I imagined her warming herself. The novelist group was not enthusiastic about my chapters. When I arrived after a snowstorm, the door was blocked with piles of snow, 
so I wandered around, wondering if they were meeting somewhere else without me. When I came home early, the phone was ringing. I ran towards it. It was Heather. She made small talk, and then she told me she had a brain tumor. It all started with continuous headaches, she said. She would be in the hospital for a little while, and then she would call when it was all over. Everything would be like the old days. I went back to my novelist group the next week. It was as if the previous week had never happened. The snow had melted, I turned the knob, and the long hallways in the writing studio welcomed me again. Heather liked to swim too, I wrote, instead of writing a sentence that would have followed logically in my novel. She was now in the past. After overcoming her sickness, those summers in the pool in her home in New Holstein, Wisconsin, melted away when we lost touch. It was a long drive I convinced my father to make, stopping halfway for waffles. When Heather's mom's boyfriend slept over, he ate an entire half of the chocolate chip cheesecake we had baked. While they were getting lucky, Heather and I were giving each other massages with lavender and rose oils. After recovering from the tumor, she changed her name to Phoebe and opened a health food shop in a race car town. I once dreamed when we synchronized our strokes, that we would rent an apartment together downtown. The last time I visited her, I knew we wouldn't find each other together. She took me to a bar where we sat with the owners of the town flower shop. She continuously played jukebox, songs on the jukebox and had so many rolling rocks that she drove right past her own house. In the end, she didn't want to be found. I couldn't find a trace of her on social media. My dad also liked to swim, but he avoided crowded pools. He liked to count his strokes. He wasn't good at dancing, but his moves were perfect in the pool. I remember my dad standing at the edge of the pool on the other side of Humboldt Park in my childhood. Once, he let me walk there in my flip-flops. I arrived in blisters, creating a slight pain that caused me to struggle in the water. As he waited for me to come out of the locker room, he opened a math textbook and scribbled in the margins in pencil. I loved the tiny numbers in his handwriting. Seeing them was my favorite part of going over my math homework together. Sometimes, my dad and I went to the lake to swim. We went down a steep cliff, getting caught in the thorns. The water was always freezing, but we went in up to our waists. We stepped over the stones and beach glass, avoiding the slippery kelp. It wasn't real swimming. It was connecting with the nature and with the cities spread out in the distance. We didn't let our splashes touch each other. It was one of the only times we swam together. The lake was right across the street from the studios where I was part of the critique group. The water guided me as I wrote and commented. I tried to make the writing as physical as swimming, moving the words through my body and onto the page. Once, I thought I saw a ship in the distance. It disappeared into the clouds. It was huge, but it floated. My dad collected the wine corks so that our house would float in case of an emergency. We had a drawer full of them in the kitchen. The corresponding bottles were on top of the bookcases in the living room. It was one of the first times I thought of water as something that could harm us. 
Now, my ability to swim is almost forgotten. My arms flail, water forces its way into my mouth. Is it Heather's warm jean shorts that I feel when I resurface? I bring her close, though it has been years since I've seen her. In my imagination, I walk through the rooms of the apartment we could have lived in, probably on the east side. The carpet would have been dirty lavender in the kitchen, ready for the tacos we would have made. Finally, my muscle memory kicks in and I continue swimming. The rubbery bottom of the kiddie pool also came to me in hallucinations. Then I already felt things would disappear. The days were never carefree. But these were the times my dad sat in a lawn chair in his sun hat, eating a beer-soaked broth, watching me splash in my bright yellow swimsuit. The Astoria pool statues had to be melted down for scrap metal during the war. Maybe my dad finds some of the statues melted into the, his memories of the time, his time served. He thinks of travel to Hong Kong, the theater magazine he subscribed to, the man on the train who asked him to buy cake for his wife at the commissary. <coughs> I might be looking for these memories, hot metal in my palm. I listen to him speak about his love for the water. He takes excursions to go out look at it. The serene tempo is a rhythm that I try to replicate in my novel. He rolls up his pant legs and steps into the cold. Braving it as I brave the cold of the swimming pool on a winter night when I look out at the snow. Believing in each stroke as if it will actually get me somewhere. The solitary nature of swimming <coughs> when I'm among so many people. I hear the sounds of a story park pool as people try to connect. Their voices interweaving, a rubber ball thrown in the air from hand. Society, and you're the person who put together these, or you helped put together? You put together, you did it. She put them together. The, the historical highlights that you were handed that we keep referring to this evening. So thank you so much for that work. But you don't live in Queens. Not anymore. But you used to. Yes. How many Eight years? years? Eight years. And you live in Brooklyn now? How many years have you lived in Brooklyn? Three. Okay, so you're still a Queens person. <laughs> yes. And so I, you can stay. I was going to remove you from the room, but you can stay. Don't worry, Bob Singleton, president of the Greater Story Great. Historical Society, he gave me an honorary Astoria sure. membership. Okay, all right. I, I support Bob. I'm, whatever Bob decides, I decide. All right, let's do, you, you don't really get much of a choice. There's one here and gone question left. I didn't think of that many, so. Um, okay, name oh, name something that is here in the world that you wish was gone. <laughs> I, don't, I, was, I guess I was having a moment when I wrote it. That is dark. I'm sorry? I know, like, one time I pulled, like, a book of Would You Rathers. I guess, anyway, I'm not going to apologize. I mean, like, so many things. Uh, like the thing that comes to mind, I'll just say it. I don't want to offend anyone, but Trump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we can leave that. We can just—that's a great I'm answer. Not. We can just leave that, unless you'd like to. You don't need to expound. We know. All right, and yeah, there's a few Queens questions left. This one says, 
Ooh, this is good for you. Okay. What's your favorite best kept secret in Queens? How about Broadway Silk? That's not a secret. Broadway Silk! So, um, this lovely woman back here is the owner of Broadway Silk, which is a store down the street from here, and I have, I live in Sunnyside now, but I've lived in many subway stops in Queens, in Astoria, and I, I'm sad to say, I passed by Broadway Silk many times, and only first came in when Kelly Jean took me to your store, and I bought a wallet that is so cool, and I've gotten compliments on that wallet every time I pull it out. I know that's not like the bulk of what your store is about, but... Ironically, Steve Martin is Chandler and performed by Olena Jennings. Peace through understanding. I first became interested in World's Fairs when I worked at the gift shop across the street from the Liberty Bell during college. In the back of a book called Old Philadelphia and Early Photographs, I saw pictures from the 1876 Centennial Exhibition. It was like an analog internet. Displays of everything in the world brought together physically for people to experience and learn from. I was captivated by the idea. I lived in Philly throughout high school, college, and all of my 20s, and enjoyed learning the history of the city. When I moved to Astoria in 2011, I immediately sought out the Greater Astoria Historical Society so I could develop a nerdy historical understanding of my new neighborhood, too. I presented lectures for them on North Beach and the 1964-65 World's Fair. There's something comforting about visiting the distant past when trying to put your own history into perspective. At the 64 World's Fair, many people tried Belgian waffles for the first time. <laughs> At the house I lived in in high school, my friends and I tried much less savory things for the first time. My mom was lenient to say the least. My best friend and I took acid for the first time there. Lots of people got high or really drunk for their first time at my parties after our soft hop, junior prom, and senior prom. Many visitors at the World's Fair saw themselves on closed circuit color television for the first time. My friends are captured on two half-hour VHSC tapes from 2000 of my junior prom after party. Gwen is drunk, I cry into the camera. I have to see. The camera zooms in on our faces as I sit down beside her and we laugh and hug. Shortly after that, Gwen declares, I want Ben, her boyfriend, Ben! Ben! <laughs> the most memorable classic moments of the videos are a series of mock commercials Eric Michelson creates on the fly for Mike's Hard Lemonade. 
You have to buy Mike's Hard Lemonade from a drunken pause. Any store that sells Mike's Hard Lemonade. The World's Fair featured a pavilion from the newest state to join our nation, Hawaii. Fairgoers participate in luas and sahula dancers. A whole new experience. My friend Jack participated in a brand new experience at my house when I took his virginity the summer before our junior year. I had only had sex with one other person, my first boyfriend, during freshman year. Jack and I were in the same friend group. We had hung out alone a few times, maybe kind of like dates. The night had happened, the lights were out. We were making out on my squeaky futon bed Jack always tasted like Carmack's lip balm. When things progressed, knowing he was a virgin, I said, are you sure you want to do this? He said, yes. I said, are you sure? He said, no. But it happened anyway. We saw each other for about a month last summer and had more sex. He even came to Wildwood, New Jersey when my family had a beach house there for a week. In August, he went away to camp. In my journal, I express annoyance, but no great surprise that Jack never called or wrote from camp. I know he'll have an excuse, I wrote, like he didn't want to call collect, or he forgot my phone number, or didn't have any stamps, and it will be genuine, but it's such a guy thing to do. The first video phones were introduced at the World's Fair, but the world wasn't ready for the bulky equipment, small screen, poor picture quality, and the whopping expense of $4 a minute for calls. <laughs> when Jack got home, right before school started, I finally reached him on a phone phone. He told me he wasn't ready for sex, drugs, or alcohol, which I had brought into his life. During this conversation is also when Jack said, well, you basically raped me. What? I demanded. I said no, and you kept going, Jack explained. I, I didn't know what to say because he was right. I scoffed. I shook my head trying to process. Well, see you at school, Jack finally said. Yeah, see ya. I ended the call on the cordless phone. He said no, but had he meant no? In the 1960s, America was still being fed an image of women who wanted and needed nothing more than a brief career as a secretary before getting married and becoming a homemaker and baby maker. In the 1990s, my generation was still being fed two very bad, very wrong narratives that I believed as a 16-year-old girl. One was that boys only want one thing, and the other was that men cannot be raped. He has to be erect. He has to be into it. Therefore, he cannot be raped. Throughout junior year, Jack expressed, in his own mild way, his deep animosity for me. But he was still in my friend circle, so we saw each other a lot in and out of school. In the hall before the first bell, our cliques sat outside the art rooms in the basement. One morning, the group was discussing a party at Jack's house freshman year. Were you there, Rosalie? Ben asked. I glanced at Jack. 
No, that was before I knew Jack. Those were the days, Jack grumbled. I frowned, but I deserved it. The theme of the 1964 World's Fair was peace through understanding. At the end of our junior year, Jack somehow found peace and gave me a friendship bracelet. It came with a note listing that each colored thread in the bracelet represented red, passion, yellow, friendship, black, anger, pink, forgiveness. If Jack forgave me, then I should have been able to forgive myself. Instead, I carried the knowledge that I had raped someone around with me as the worst thing I had ever done. At the World's Fair, visitors added their names to a book that is in the Westinghouse time capsule, buried in Flushing Meadow Park, to be unearthed in 5,000 years. Towards the end of the se our senior year, my class was in the gymnasium for a yearbook signing swap. Even though the friendship bracelet had meant a lot to me and things between us seemed good, I still felt anxious as I handed Jack my yearbook. I still expected him to write, I hate you and you ruined my life. I peeked at what he actually wrote while I was still in the gym and slammed the book shut with a gasp, then a laugh, then a flood of embarrassment and gratitude and confusion. Hey, remember when we had sex? It was fun. You threw great parties. Love, Jack M. That is the closest we've ever come to discussing the topic again. The General Motors exhibit at the 64 World's Fair was a ride that took fairgoers 60 years into the future. GM predicted that in 2024, we would have commuter spaceships on the moon and deep sea hotels. I never would have predicted that in 2006, five years after we graduated, Jack would become my roommate. He lived with me in the same house where I had wrongly taken his virginity. If he was okay with it, then I figured I should be too. I was grateful to have him as a housemate for the next two years and a good friend beyond that. With the Me Too movement and society's ever-evolving discussion of consent, the memory and the knowledge of what I did to Jack kept mutating into an ever-uglier demon living inside me. I couldn't help but think of our past when Jack and I took road trips together, sharing hotel rooms or tents. I couldn't help thinking about it at his wedding. Did his wife know what ha had happened between us? The 1964-65 World's Fair closed on October 17, 1965. There are pieces of the fair scattered across the country. Uniroyal's giant tire Ferris wheel became a billboard for the company in Allen Park, Michigan. Disney's It's a Small World is still in operation in Florida. The giant dinosaur statues from Sinclair Oil's exhibit Dinoland were sent to various parks and museums around the country. On our latest trip in December 2021, Jack, who now lives in North Dakota, met me in Dallas, Texas. We took a walking tour that led us to the site of JFK's assassination. Kennedy was a huge proponent of the 1964 World's Fair, by the way. Then we drove south to real dinosaur tracks preserved in the ground at Dinosaur Valley National Park. Where are you going? Jack cried over the roof of, of the rental car as I suddenly took off across the parking lot. I think this might be from the World's Fair, I shouted over my shoulder. The what? Jack called. Oh my god, they are. Come here. Sinclair Dinoland. I motioned Jack over. He walked slowly. 
with his hands in the pockets of his jeans, squinting at me. The 64 World's Fair in Queens, these were there. I waved my arms at the iconic Sinclair Brontosaurus, the giant T-Rex and an informational sign between them. They were dressed for Christmas. The Brontosaurus had a ridiculously long multicolored scarf wrapped around its neck. The T-Rex wore a Santa hat. Look, they brought them to New York on a barge down the Hudson River. I pointed at a grainy photo on the sign of all nine dinosaurs making their way to the fair. Cool, Jack smiled. We posed for a timer photo with the brontosaurus, leaning against the split rail fence next to each other, grinning. The artifacts and memories of the World's Fair endure, and so does my friendship with Jack. I had never told anyone the full story about what happened. I hated to even admit it to myself. As I've been working on this story, sifting through my own history, and where it collides with the World's Fair, I am starting to find some peace. Peace through understanding. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.